You're listening to Tonebenders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today. Today we have an awesome episode talking about one of my favorite genres of film, the Western. So we have a bunch of awesome guests to talk about how they've tackled doing sound design for Westerns over the years. Uh, the main body of this episode will feature a roundtable talk with Wiley Stateman, Don Sylvester, and Mandel Winter. Once we get into the interview, I'll introduce them all and you'll see why they are the best experts around in how to talk about sound design for Westerns because they've done some of the modern classics. They're all based in uh, California, LA area. So to get kind of an international perspective, we also reached out to Valerie Deloof, who was the sound supervisor on the awesome Sisters Brothers film, which was posted in France and shot in Spain. So uh, we just wanted to get kind of a perspective of how people are doing Westerns in other places as well. Valerie was a little uneasy with taking part in the main conversation because English is her second language, so she asked to do kind of an interview on her own ahead of time. So we'll play that one first, it's a pretty quick one, and then we'll get into the main body with the other three guys from LA. This is going to be a great talk, this is probably going to be one of my favorite episodes of the show because I think working on a western is something that all sound people really want to do one day because it's about big, wide open spaces that you have to fill with sound to make interesting and it's an awesome sound sandbox to really dig into and make some awesome sound design. This genre is something that I grew up with loving and uh, I've never got to work on a Western. I've worked on a couple kind of animated spoofs of Westerns. So hopefully one day I will be able to do that. I look very much forward to it. So, okay, let's get to the Valerie Deloof interview and then we'll skip over to the main interview with uh, Mandel, Don and Wiley. Let's do it. What's wrong with you? Remember what happened last night? Yes? And? You remember that you hit me? I hit you? I hit you? Stop pretending and spare me the I don't remember routine. You hit me in public, Charlie. So as sure as you're looking at me right now, I'm leaving. No, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> All right, what do you want? It's about slapping each other in public. So I slap you, you slap me back, Raven. So go ahead, hit me. Hit me. Ah! Jesus what is your goddamn problem? I slapped you and whacked you in the head with a shovel. <laughs> you do remember. That was a clip from The Sisters Brothers, a movie from a couple years ago that took place during the gold rush. And the supervising sound editor on this film was Valerie Deloof. Welcome, Valerie. Hi, Tim. I'm going to try to answer to your questions and hope it will be okay for you. Sorry for my French accent. No need to apologize at all. So let's get to it. Uh, what was the hardest part of the Western genre for you to tackle when doing the Sisters Brothers? I thought it was very difficult to purpose various and lively things to illustrate the town's life. You can have carpenters, you can have metal smiths, sometimes a wagon, some animals, and after that, what else? I was missing voices to give movement and life to those scenes. I couldn't use sounds from library because I don't understand English well enough. And it was unusual for me not to have any material because in France we used to make sounds on location with the crowd and the extras. But in that case it was not possible because the location was in Spain and the extras were Spanish 
so they didn't speak in English better than I do. Jacques Audiard, the director, wanted that even if we couldn't understand or hear what people said in the background, nothing could be uh, nonsense with the situation. So we had to write lines for those extras and make a lot of ADR with different voices, accent and languages, with people chatting, shouting and sometimes singing, close and far, to constitute a new material for editing. It was really interesting to work on this with the dialogue editor and the ADR supervisor. Was there anything for the Sister Brothers that you had to approach differently than you normally would for maybe a modern drama? My work was also different for the soundscape of nature because I couldn't find enough American landscape sounds. So I worked with my own French ambiences and I removed all the typical French birds. That must have been fun. Thank you, Isotop. <laughs> I wanted the soundscape couldn't be too European for an American audience, and I wanted the French audience could believe in an American soundscape. So I visited a lot of ornithologist websites to find good American birds and replace the French ones. And perhaps it seems now exotic for everybody. But it was really funny to recreate a soundscape you never heard. A lot of people think that it's the Foley that really pulls a Western soundtrack together. How did you approach the Foley for this film? For the Foley's, we worked with Philippe Penaud, which is, I think, the best Foley guy in the world. What he can create is incredible. He knows exactly what's missing on sound editing, and I only gave to him the bounce of my Pro Tools sessions. For the horses, I decided to make them with real sound, and it took me a long time. I've forgotten they have four legs. The foley comes to complete the close-up and the very far horses because I couldn't have them without any rumor or plane. Of course, he also made the metal of the stirrups and the leather of the saddles. Joachim Phoenix is a vegan, so he had a plastic saddle. For the river scenes, we do the same with the foley. I didn't want the water to be foley in the bathtub, so I use all the production sound and mix it with other sounds of water recorded outside on the lake, and the foley comes to complete the close-up and the shovels. How did you deal with the horses in the film? For the horses, I knew I was cheating with the reality. Horses don't make so much noise. Perhaps it's a Western general character, but I wanted them louder than reality. And we do the same for the gunfight, which are exaggerated. Okay, before I let you go, just one last question. What was your favorite moment working on the films and what, what made you really love working on a Western? The best moment for me was when I learned I was going to work on that movie. You know, for a French sound designer, doing a Western is incredible. So it was like a childhood dream. Ha, childhood dream. I guess that's the same for all of us. Thank you very much for talking to us and uh, we'll have you on again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tim. going to be digging deep into doing sound design for westerns. These movies are a genre that has been with us from the very beginning of the medium of film. With us today are Mandel Winter. Mandel is previously on Tonebenders on our talk about his work on True Detective. 
In addition to that project, he worked as a sound supervisor on westerns including Deadwood the Movie, The Magnificent Seven from 2016, and Meek's Cutoff, which is a movie that I don't think a lot of people seen, but is an amazing movie. I love that. What was your favorite part of working on Meek's Cutoff, Mandel? Meek's Cutoff was a, a very quick film. Yeah. And the minimalism in that film, I think, is what struck me. So also with us is Don Sylvester. Don recently won the Academy Award for sound editing on Ford vs. Ferrari. His past films as sound supervisor include Logan and Walk the Line, as well as the fabulous western 310 to Yuma, and also kind of the western adjacent The Longest Ride. So there's horses in that one, but it's not really a western. <laughs> so Don, do you th think that you get to keep the belt forever now that there won't be a sound editing Oscar? Like, you never have to give that title belt back now, right? Yeah, that's my plan. <laughs> Once I encouraged them all to drop the sound editing award, I decided that it was in my best interest to promote myself. If anybody wonders what we're talking about, it's a good idea, in my opinion, to combine the mixing and the sound editing because everybody, in our, at least in my world, does both, and we share responsibilities. And it's really hard to talk to somebody who hasn't worked on a film and say, look at that film, what aspect of that film is, is the sound doing? Is it that the mix thing, or is that an edit thing, or is it a combination of both? And I think most times people can't tell so, yeah, I'm lucky I'm the last guy. I broke the system, but I think it's a good move to combine the uh, the award into a single one. For sure. I know Wiley doesn't agree. Oh, Wiley doesn't agree. Maybe we can talk about that. Speaking of Wiley, we have our returning champion, Wiley Stateman. He's been on our podcast before. Wiley is a nine-time Oscar nominee. He's worked on Westerns, including The Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and the excellent Netflix series Godless, which I really enjoyed. I love that series. One of his first IMDb credits is for The Long Riders about the Jesse James gang. So what did you learn on that first Western that you worked on, Wiley? Well, uh, Westerns are, you know, a kind of a unique genre, and it's, uh, it's maybe uniquely American, although the Italians have done a really beautiful job telling American Western tales. But I think from the Long Riders to, let's say, Godless or, or Django, you know, a lot, a lot has changed. And doing design for film meant basically taping together pieces of, of film that had, you know, oxide on it and scratching things and overlapping things in a synchronizer and building it in a moviola. You know, there is a lot to learn sort of about each phase of technology, but the genre itself is really, it's a very a wonderful sort of palette to work in and horses and guns and, and stoic personalities and stories <laughs> about the American West. They lend themselves to sound. So it's always a learning process. And that's what makes this so interesting. I think as colleagues, we could discuss the awards that, uh, and I don't disagree with you, Don. I think that, that the awards are, are part of an industry trying to gratify itself in public. Uh, but in private, we work and we toil uh, as craftsmen doing soundtracks. And it's really each one is challenged as a team. You know, it's always been the supervising sound editor and the production sound mixers and the re-recording mixers and everybody's sort of talents coming together to create a soundtrack. But uh, we can we can unpack any one of those things individually. But it's uh, it's it's nice that that sound is recognized. And I wish if there was only one wish to have, you know, that we received the kind of recognition as other departments. You know, uh, I think the sound designer, whoever that is, uh, whether it's the production mixer or the re-recording mixer or the supervising sound editor, but that the sound designer be treated like a department head you know, along the lines of a DP or a production designer or an editor. Anyway, a different conversation. 
<laughs> well, let's stick to Westerns for right now. Uh, Don, when you worked on 310 to Yuma, what was your favorite part about jumping into the genre of Western? Like what, what got you excited to work on that type of movie? It's funny because initially um, everybody wants to do a Western and initially it was just ticking off a box. Everybody has grown up with Westerns and, and uh, you just want to dig into that. It's a sound man's dream come true. So originally it was going to be the guns. I was all excited about the guns, but ultimately it was not the guns that were the most exciting aspect to it. For me, I, I like the train, the steam train, and that gave me a lot of challenges and it became a personality that I that I kind of had to construct out of whole cloth. In fact, there's a scene in the end of the movie where Ben Wade, Russell Crowe, has a standoff with his posse. And spoiler alert, he ends up shooting them. But during the whole scene, they're all standing next to this this resting steam train that is is pulsating. And that's something that I created um, as a kind of a heartbeat to the scene. And there's no music in the scene. So as the scene draws out, the drama increases because you're feeling this rhythm going on in the background. For one leg rancher. He's one tough son of a bitch. So for me to add that into the film was a great moment because I, I created a character in the train and I thought the train was really a, a, a neat aspect of it. So I started out wanting to do guns, you know, I've done horses and all that kind of stuff. But in the end, I think the train was something that I, I really enjoyed. Mandel, was there something that jumped out on one of the uh, Westerns you've worked on that you're really excited to work on? Well, Magnificent Seven was one of the first opportunities where we set aside enough money to get the foley done right and i felt the foley we we saved up every penny we could to get dan o'connell and his foley was just amazing when we'd start getting reels in and scenes they'd pull the gold out of the stagecoach and the chest felt heavy or you had all seven guys walking down the main thoroughfare and it felt like seven unique individuals not a herd of elephants it was one of my favorite parts was getting the foley and just seeing how much more detail we could add to it and it's that organic element bringing uh, the Western all together. The Foley is something that I think is super important for Westerns because Westerns have to be gritty. Like you don't see a lot of like super shiny, uh, slick Westerns. They're normally gritty and dirty. One of the most famous Westerns is literally called True Grit. So Foley, I think, would bring a lot of that. And then ambiences as well. Does anyone, maybe Wiley, do you want to talk about how you get the grit into the soundtrack for Westerns? Yeah, the ambiences are very important, but, um, you know, I, I did agree with Mandel. The Foley is, is critical. Uh, the sound of, uh, of the Great West is, is not an industrial base palette. So Foley becomes really critical and ambiences become critical and wind and things like that. You know, the sound of the prairie and the sound of the American West is, is uniquely open. And it's, it's, uh, it's you know, they, they used to refer to it as the new frontier. 
And that's because it attracted a certain type of stoic individual. And a lot of the stories that we tell are about these kind of rugged individuals in a very rugged surrounding. So uh, backgrounds really are helpful. They help eliminate any production problems that you had with airplanes and modern sounds. And and then the Foley bedded into the background is really uh, a crucial. We made actually uh, leather instruments to improve the sound of the sort of creaking saddles and gun holster poles. And and there's just so many amazing, just detailed elements to, to the Foley track that uh, are really outstanding. I worked with Gary Hecker on a, on a number of Westerns and um, Jeff Wilhoyt as well. But, you know, the, the Foley is is really defined, like as, as Mandel said, by giving it weight and giving it texture and giving it grit. So really important to, uh, to telling that kind of story. Don, did you have something to add to that? You look like you were... Well, no, I I agree. I agree a thousand percent. Foley is the secret to um, almost everything in creating a, a palette. Look, we have thousands of sounds in our libraries that we can go to if we if we think we can we can do it. Uh, but nobody in their right mind will use a library when they have Foley available to them, or, or else they will use a combination of some kind of library and Foley, because Foley adds the personality and the character of what you're trying to do, and that's not a library requirement. My director, James Mangold, who did 310 to Yuma, was insistent that all the Foley be character-driven. I mean, it, it yes, it's grit, weight, and all that, but if it doesn't play like the character, what would the character do? Then it doesn't read, doesn't read true. It's a really important lesson I learned. He was constantly redoing the Foley because he would tell us a nuance about the character that we hadn't realized. Like, you know, this guy would never do that. He would do it this way. And so each time we got closer to the, the true character. So that's what Foley does for you. It's not only just sound, it's also story and it propels the plot so it's a real important element of any soundtrack and more so in the west because at that era everything is wood and steel i mean it, it's it's visceral you know mandel's right once you add foley it, it comes alive because it's re it makes sense now it grounds the story so yeah foley's the secret in my opinion one of the things I love about Westerns is the creativity and ambiences that is needed because you can't just throw, you know, anything from modern society and you have to come up with something that makes sense for that time period. And uh, as Don was saying earlier, to build something out of the train sitting idle or to build something out of distant uh, coyotes howling or something. Mandel, have you ever found something that really worked to bring a scene's ambiences to life with something maybe off screen? Well, we're always looking to expand the off screen. I, I think, uh, especially in a Western, vast amounts of space, big open air, anything that can give you that sense of openness. Um, a lot of wind buffeting. I, I, I like the, the, almost the sound of the wind buffet, almost hitting the microphone capsule. It's almost like it's hitting your eardrum when you're out in the desert or something like that. I, I grew up in Colorado, so I'm very fond of going out to these places and, and listening to them. And it is that wind just right over your ear that often really sells that open space. One of the most important aspects of any Western is the sort of the ride up and the ride away. And to accomplish those things without music is a challenge in itself. But in most cases, we have beautiful entrance uh, moments for score and taking the wind, taking the horses, wrapping everything around a music cue is a really beautiful way to get in and out of dialogue scenes. 
and a Western without the ride up and without the ride off is really just actors standing in bad costumes delivering uh, awkward period dialogue. So it's that is, in fact, the, maybe the greatest challenge is to get those things right and get them right with music, texture and, and rhythm and create a style for the particular project. I know we did have a problem with frogs on Magnums and Seven. They, they filmed it in Baton Rouge and did VFX for the mountains. But it was an intimate scene, very low level quiet talking between Denzel and Ethan. And these frogs were so loud. They took up the whole track. You couldn't just isotope those out. You're like, okay, how do we blend those in? How do we incorporate it and make it part of the West? Because the frogs just felt inappropriate. They were there. They were in that production track. So what was the answer? How did you make it work? More bugs. (laughs) A lot more bugs. I think the great thing about the great outdoors, which is the West, is you sell the scope of everything by by the report of guns that travel into the surrounds. And you try to expand the palette of, of what you're seeing through sound. And so uh, we spent a lot of time in the surrounds with all the all the verbs and the bouncing of the of the gunshots. The gun would would fire and then it would be a, a delayed effect off screen and um, it just gave it a scope that you knew was there, but it just reinforced it. And we did that with, with a lot of things. It would ring out, ring out, have a longer lifespan in the Old West because of the nature of where they were. I mean, you're sitting, you got a house out in the country and a wagon comes up and you hear it in the distance a mile away. If you really like verbs and an atmospheric kind of decays, you know, it's built for that. So speaking of guns, they obviously play an outsized role in Westerns. There's not too many Westerns that don't have at least a few shots going off in them. Uh, In your experience, are you guys going out and recording fresh material for the Westerns you've worked on? We did for Magnificent Seven. Yeah, we did a large gun record with Charles Maines. Cool. And where did you do that? It was a small bull canyon, a private gun range where the 118 and 210 meet here in L.A., so... Went up there for a day and shot black powder. And you got periods realistic guns, or how did you... Yeah, we, we talked to the armorers on the film, and we, we came up with a selection of guns that would kind of outfit everybody. And we did a 24-channel gun record with uh, full and half uh, rounds, so that way we could come up with any number of options. And our uh, my co-supervisor and sound designer, David Esparza, took all of that and went to town creating all of the all the guns. Wiley? Uh, well, I'll tell you, on Django, without uh, asking for, for permission from producers, because that would have been impossible, we mounted a little mission and we got in the car and we drove to Death Valley to, to record some gunshot reports. Because the actual percussion part of a gunshot is uh, very well described and it can be captured almost anywhere. But as both my colleagues were saying, it's the report that makes all the difference. And you can use echo uh, devices to get a report, but there's nothing as convoluted as the real thing. And so, you know, we go out and we look for these places. And I've been locally at at the range you're talking about, and I've been to Piru and I've been to Angeles Crest, and we wanted to go further. So we loaded up some camping equipment and we went to Death Valley. We recorded there. It didn't produce what we wanted. So we got in the car and we took some back roads into Nevada and found some canyons there that also produced some interesting things, but didn't give us what we wanted. So we packed back into the car and went to Utah. And uh, from Utah, we ended up at uh, Monument Valley, which is probably the heart of any red blooded American Western. (laughs) And on the backside in Monument Valley, using starter pistols and various other, we had a 
a cannon that was shooting blanks. We recorded some amazing echoes against these uh, thousand foot sandstone rock faces. And we used those to model a lot of our acoustical space for Django. I think it's interesting, you know, we, we all go out with gun shoots and, and armorers and stuff like that. But the real trick to it is to get to the right place. And uh, there are places in Lake Powell that I've recorded guns. We did the gunshot that uh, kills Kennedy in, in Dealey Plaza. First, we recorded echoes on the production, and then we went out to Lake Powell and recorded back in some of the slot canyons, a Manlicker Carcano, same caliber gun. But what we learned from that is it's really not the caliber. A 22 pistol will give you a better report than a 30-06 in the right place. So, But going out to record guns is a well-explored thing. And all of us have, have done at various points, and we're very proud of the places we go and the extent that we, we go to get there. But on something like Django, you know, you can't ask for permission to go out into a place where, you know, uh, I'm sure we ventured into parts of Monument Valley where people just don't venture with a four-wheel drive pickup truck and, uh, and a starter pistol. And you can't ask for permission. You just have to have that inside of you that you just want to go to that length. So when you were recording the starter pistol, you're, you're just getting impulse responses to use in plugins when you get back. That, that was your goal? The goal was to not go to jail. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> to uh, discharge a firearm in a, in a state park or on an Indian reservation. You know, there, there's... And, you don't ever want somebody to get hurt. So we were sort of limited in, in some of our choices. Yeah, It's funny. We went out to uh, Missoula, Montana, and we used uh, this sort of mountainous area, which was adjacent to a gun range, but we kind of we moved a little bit off the gun range. And one of my editors, Ted Kaplan, who helped design the guns, took a rig up the hill overlooking the area. That's where we got the best sounds because those are the ones that were the the slow decay. That was the bonus. The funny thing is that we recorded single bolt action rifles and shotguns and 45s and 38s and all these different period guns, black powder, took them to the mixing stage. They sounded just amazing. But our director said, what, what, is, what is this? What is this? And I said, well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a Hollywood sound per se. It's kind of a, it's kind of a really accurate period piece with a lot of integrity. And he says, I'm making a Hollywood movie. I said, well, okay. He said, well, make it Hollywood guns. I went, oh, okay. So, um, you know, let's face it. You, you come in with preconceived notions of what you want it to sound like. And someone smart like me comes along and says, well, this is what it really sounds like. And then they go like, no, I want it to sound the way I want it to sound. We ended up augmenting these natural sounds with other guns to give him his Hollywood sound. Although it's still black powder in there, but there's discerning ear will tell you that it's not the real gun. It's a it's a hybrid. And that's what you have to do sometimes, even though you work really hard to make it sound period, it, it's not going to uh, tickle everyone's fancy. So guns are very subjective, very, very subjective. I mean, you could have the right gun in the right environment and it would still maybe wouldn't work for the guy who wants to hear a Hollywood gun. And I'll just throw one other thing also on top of that. The Hollywood gun sound for me is this stacked sound where it, it starts with Foley sound of somebody squeezing a piece of wood or squeezing the handle of a revolver or, or the buttstock of a rifle. And then it's the dry fire mechanism. So you hear all the mechanical elements of the revolver chamber or the, the black powder strike system and then from there you work your way out and it's the initial plosive sound of, of the charge going off 
It's then the sound of the projectile going supersonic out of the barrel. And then you keep working your way back to getting towards the environment of the interior or the exterior, or then the space and the reports and all the things that go back into the surrounds. So it's this layer of, of things that all have to be like a symphony. Each one has to have its own little peekaboo moment within that very, very short instance of a, what is a gunshot. Uh, but once you get that right and you have all these pieces basically firing like a little parade of sounds, you have something that's really interesting. I think one of the things that our director really wanted us to do was to have a signature sound that nobody else had, which was, wow. I mean, that's, yeah, okay, that's hard. We tried about 10, 12 different kinds of experiments. And what we ended up with, if you look at the film, the 310, the Yuma film, you'll notice that the the hammer plays a real important part in every gunshot. We have a big hammer, and that's what our director wanted, and that's what he got. So maybe it's unique, maybe it's not unique, but... For me, this was completely different from going out to Missoula, Montana and shooting guns. This was a constructed sound that was in the director's head that he wanted to hear. So now we've got this big silver hammer every time we fire a gun. This is James Mangold. We're talking about the director. Yes. Was he able to articulate that that's what he wanted or is he just saying like... Well, James is a really amazing director because he doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. He tells you what the effect should be on him. You have to figure out how to get there. It's almost like describing a painting. You know, you say, I want to, I want to feel it. I want it to feel warm and, and I want it to make me look at this and think this. And this is how he describes his sound. And this is how he reacts to sound. So when he says he wants a gun uh, that sounds different from anything else, he says, I want a gun to tickle my ears. I want a gun that, uh, you know, does, you know, I can't do it because I'm not as good as he is. But he'll never say, I want a silver hammer every time you fire a gun. That's our answer. His need is, I want a, I want a gun that tickles my ears every time I hear it. So that's what we work on. So I guess something that we haven't talked about yet is horses. Horses are, if not the most important part of Westerns, like that they're omnipresent, even if they're not uh, maybe the thing being ridden at the time. There's always horses in the background. And anyone who spent a lot of time around horses knows that they don't actually make that many vocal sounds. But in Westerns, they have to. So how are you going about getting the vocals from the horses? Horses are really bad actors. (laughs) They don't do what you think they do. They don't whinny when they're running. They don't rear back on their... I mean, the horses that are in films don't make any sound at all. So every time you watch a Western, you're going to see horses added. It's all going to be constructed by somebody with an idea of creating a conversation between the horse and the rider or other people. The horse is, is... this dialogue. A horse has dialogue. You can record all the horses you want, but you got to find the right sound to make the horse do what you think the horse is, what the character of the horse is doing at that moment. If the horse is afraid, then you add some whinnies and so forth. If the horse is happy and some knickers, you know, it's all depending on the character that you're creating from the horse out of whole cloth because the horse is not acting and they don't make the sounds that you think they will make. We went out and recorded a bunch of horses on set for this movie called Flicka. They didn't make any sound. We were like, the horse is not doing anything. We had like hours of people yelling, cut. So anybody that can that do a good horse, probably a good dialogue editor, because that's really what you're doing. You're making the horse talk. I think along with the, the talking for the horse is, is the breathing. And getting that right, we needed other animals to create the sound that felt appropriate. Sometimes it was human. You see their nostrils flare at a certain point, and you're like, okay, we need something big for that moment to sell it. And we just grab it on the Foley stage or ADR stage, and all of a sudden it worked. And we we had that fear as they're charging each other, 
creating the character for the horse, I think, is is very important so that you get the mood, whatever scene it is. I mean, we want to help sell the story, and it's not just sound for sound's sake. It's sound with a purpose. Yeah. Horses are a lot like cars. There's the front end, there's the back end, there's the undercarriage. So they're constructed of bridle and leather because generally in Westerns, they're being ridden. Their hooves are on different surfaces, which are also very characteristic in terms of how they record. And then the horse itself, the biology of it, the breathing and the snorting and the nickering, and there are names for everything, you know, whinny, bray, nicker, blow, snort, and you can actually create instruments. And so you get the source wherever you get the source and the source has proximity. So it's always going to be different. You recorded it in a barn, you recorded it in a pasture, who knows? But the best way I think to deal with horses is to construct them out of these three kind of food groups. There's the bridle and saddle, there's the horse itself, and it's whinnies, knickers, blows, snorts, breaths, um, and then there's the feet. And the feet are a whole vocabulary in and of themselves. And oftentimes we capture that uh, in real recordings in the Foley stage. Gary Hecker, who I absolutely adore, is a tremendous Foley artist. He's half man, half horse. <laughs> do anything a horse can do with, with his ability to vocalize those sounds. And they're amazing. And you can get the exact cadence in a, in a running scene or you can get a lot of this performance stuff through him as an actor. And as both my colleagues said, horses are actors in Westerns. So when you've got the horses in the scene, how are you deciding when to use the vocals? Like, I guess what I mean is there's lots of times, Magnificent Seven, for example, where, uh, you know, you've got people lined up across for a shootout and uh, there's just little things poking through from the horses in the distance and such. Is that just playing it by ear? How, how do you go about tackling when to throw in the little flavors from the horses? I think a lot of it comes down to taste and what's telling the story. Do we need to hear that now? I mean, as you're watching the scene, what's music doing? What else is happening? I mean, I don't want to just throw a, a ton of extra sound in there just because there are horses there. It's like, it has to be there for a purpose. In that particular scene where they're kind of waiting for the standoff and then start charging each other. There's a lot of fear and anticipation. And not only do the men feel that, but so do the horses. And we wanted to sell that. I'll just also offer one thing, which is that sound design as an art form is really dependent on picture rhythms and director instincts and how do they want to linger or how they want to tell the story. And Picture editing is the first and most important thing for constructing music and for constructing sound design. So when we're looking at a Western, we're often looking at rhythms that are fairly unique to this particular uh, genre. And it's really interesting to construct horses and to construct ambiences and to do so in a way that sort of allows the music to have its own entry point and to or flatter it at a, at, the, at a climax or to just punctuate things with a horse vocal or whatnot. And it's a really it's a it's a beautiful canvas to work on. I think any of us who've worked in Westerns have found our way uh, to fall in love with that particular genre and to find the elements, these organic elements that are so wonderful to produce on the Foley stage or to combinations of library materials and, and field records. Uh, but to get all of that stuff working, it's really highly dependent on the film construct and, uh, of course, the music. So I think that it is a very coherent form of sound design that, uh, that allows the sound designer to flatter this format with great detail but also acoustical space and, uh, and taste. 
I couldn't agree with you more, Wiley. That that was very eloquently said. Uh, I just want maybe we can just talk about the feet for horses. Wiley, you talked about how you kind of break it up into the three parts of the horse. Have you ever used actual hoofs for horses, or do you always get it done in foley? I have a really interesting kit of foley uh, instruments and. For the Western, I have a set of hooves that were made by a Foley artist back in the MGM days. It was first conceived of in the 50s, and they look like two coconut shells on a handle. And so those tend to give you a really nice kind of clip-clopping rhythm. I actually have a horsetail that I got from Mongolia somewhere. That's why I say it's the front end and the back end. You know, there's nothing better than having a great horsetail swipe to take you out of a, a shot or to bring you up close and personal to that end of the horse. <laughs> As they say, the southbound end of a northbound horse is an important element in what we do. <laughs> but I would say that these Foley tools and leather tools, you know, I had a shoemaker in San Francisco make me a leather tool just for saddles and bridles and things like that. You have to get hand forged chain if you want it to sound right, because machine chain all sounds like potato chips when you record it with a condenser microphone. So there are things that you learn over time. These are all tricks that we share with each other and, and uh, Dan O'Connell and uh, Gary Hecker, they once worked together with Jeff Wilhoit. So there's a lot of shared knowledge in the community here, and there's lots of really wonderful practices. But the Western itself, it is like a, a gift box that most sound designers, they love to play in that sandbox and they love to work with these acoustical palettes, material and foley and backgrounds, field records. It's been just such an absolute pleasure to, to do this genre. The horse hooves and the horse cadence and so forth is a combination of everything you can get. It's foley and it's sound effects and it's whatever you have at your disposal. The surfaces change sometimes between actual feet of the horse, so you have to be aware of that. But what I find is interesting, and I don't want to, I'm not complaining, but if you listen to a lot of foley horses, it's three feet and they go cut a kunk, cut a kunk, cut a kunk, cut a kunk, and you go, well, where's the fourth foot? So that when you're actually cutting horses, you really need all the tools in your kit because your foley guys are probably going to give you much of what you want, but not everything. I have to cheat a lot of the a lot of the foley and i use a lot of real horse tracks to augment the foley and and vice versa you know you watch the horse move and he's got four feet you listen to it you, you need to hear all four feet and i just find that sometimes people just let it happen especially in gallops they go bum, 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 and, and you're missing a, a, an element there so that's just an observation i've had over the years of trying to i mean it takes a special person to cut horse feet <laughs> yes it does a very patient person yes it's also very much about the rhythm of how the horse is moving. There were many times where we had it perfectly in sync, but it felt off. It just felt weird. It didn't feel right. And so you get back into the rhythm of what it looks like the horse is doing, and all of a sudden it feels natural. And it may be a frame out or two frames out, but it feels right as you're watching it. So it's very much about the rhythm of how the horse is moving. That, for me, is the secret of almost everything. You may get the right sync, but it looks crazy. It looks wrong. So you just go with what you feel is right, and it, it wins the day. Horses' hoofs are obviously very percussive. And when you're cutting them, a lot of times you don't have the music yet. And then when the music comes in, have you ever had the problem of the, the rhythms not matching up properly that you have to kind of fix? I had something similar to that. I The, the surface changed. It looked like dirt at one point, but then it... The VFX, it was it was more gravel, so they wanted a rockier sort of sound. So you're like, okay, well, at least I know where 
to put the sounds now. Yeah, match your previous edit with the new sound. Exactly. Yeah. I usually find that if you've got a cadence issue with the music, the music will then win. Because the music is really the emotional story that they're telling, and they're telling you how to feel with the music. And if you've got horses and it's clashing with the music, I can tell you right now that the horses are going to be lowered. It's a no-brainer. I'll be the one that say it. Can we lower those horses? They're not in the same cadence as the timpanies or whatever's going on. But I'm I'm lucky in the sense that 310 to Yuma didn't play that kind of music. Everything was pretty acoustic, and we didn't have any brass or any strings or anything like that. We just had, like, basically guitar and tablas and things like that. And so, I mean, it was a very sympathetic musical soundtrack to the genre. It was almost as if there was two guys sitting in the side of the scene playing music. So we didn't have that problem. But that kind of music puts pressure on you because you got to carry a lot more of the emotional weight of the soundtrack. I don't think the sound is carrying emotional weight. I think the sound is supporting the story the story tells you emotional weight um, if the director has a great scene we can make it better i mean we can add sonically to it unless you've got a character like the train in the end which i i agree did help in my opinion but i don't think that's our job i mean our job is basically to tell the story the director will do the emotional heavy lifting and also the editor one thing i wanted to say about horses and editing is that sometimes the editors don't cut horses right or they don't pay attention to where the feet are so you're going and then you have a cut and they're like oops they're like a half beat off and then you've got to figure out where to cheat it because you're going to make sure that the horse sounds like it's the same horse and moving through time and space and so that's that's a real challenge when these guys are cutting for other reasons than the sound then you just have to you have to adapt to that what's your biggest challenge for working on westerns mendo Many for me is time, because you want to just dig in and do so much, and there's always that time limit. Well, okay. And then the other biggest challenge for me is, at least working with Antoine, he's he's not a huge fan of ADR, as, as a lot of directors aren't. This was the director of Magnificent Seven, correct? Uh, Magnificent Seven, yeah. So he very much wanted us to clean up the production and get rid of all the modern sounds. I mean, airplanes or, or whatever, which we were able to do. You don't want to over clean the dialogue track in a Western. You can embrace that grit. I think that was the hardest part was having the dialogue team not do so much. The first pass, I was like, oh, okay. No, no, no. Go back. <laughs> you did too much. It, it felt a little too, too cleaned. Too much processing, you mean? Too much isotope. It was like, you can leave some of that dirt in the track. It lends itself. So it's it's finding that balance. Sometimes you'll clean a lot more for a modern film where you don't want certain sounds in there. Or you can mask it with a modern sound. You're like, oh, there's something in the track, but I'll put a car by and it's gone. Here, you can't do that. <laughs> so I think that was the biggest challenge for me was, okay, we need to clean the track and get rid of the stuff that we don't want, but don't clean it too much. So that then we can lay in the backgrounds and lay in everything else and it just feels of the same piece i think there's just so much detail that we can do in a western you, you can't do in other genres mm -hmm. don uh, we had a challenge in new mexico because it was such a dry environment that we had all these electrical digital snaps and it was just some kind of static electricity everywhere we went at first we thought we could just fix it but we had to take a whole new approach to everything and it was just somehow the environment was so dry and static that it was just creating all kinds of of noises they are entirely man-made that's a problem in any environment but but in a western you know you're sitting there and, and that guy leans in to go forward in his saddle and you hear all this 
digital snapping going on. It's like, well, we can't use that now. We have to now recreate that moment, and that's a drag because, you know, the real sounds are really, they're good. You need them. You want to have the real sounds because you don't want to make it too artificial. You don't want to make it sound like it's been done on a soundstage in Culver City. You want it to be the real place. So that was a real problem. Every time we go to New Mexico, there's similar issues. It's a, such a dry place. An interesting story. There, there was a Western called The Brothers Sisters that came out uh, two years ago, maybe three years yeah, it was ago. Joaquin. Exactly. So Joaquin Phoenix is a vegan and wouldn't sit on a leather saddle. So uh, Valerie Deloof, who is a French sound supervisor, she worked on this film. She was going to join us today, but because English is her second language, she dropped out. Anyway, she was saying to me that uh, this plastic saddle was making these completely inappropriate noises. It looked like a leather saddle, but it was a complete nightmare to deal with this plastic saddle because of his veganism. He wouldn't use a real leather saddle. So that was an interesting problem that I'd never thought you'd run into. Leave it to Joaquin. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Mandel, this is a funny story about my viewing of Ford vs. Ferrari. I went and saw the premiere at the Toronto Film Festival, and it was in what is normally a play theater, not a movie theater, because they needed so many people in. So we're all packed in like sardines, and the rows are super long. And I was sitting beside a woman who was there on her own, and she was in maybe her early 50s. And in the scene when uh, Matt Damon takes Ford Jr. for the ride around the airport strip, this woman had a full-on panic attack. Like, she couldn't handle this scene. She started, like, she was bent over, hyperventilating. And when she calmed down, like, I thought she was having a heart attack. It was a genuinely scary moment. But when she calmed back down and started getting her breath again, she was saying it was just so real. It was so real. And she even mentioned the sound. Like, your sound design literally gave someone a panic attack. So that's a fairly impressive thing. It it was an amazing scene. That was not my goal. <laughs> you weren't trying I didn't to, want to give anyone a panic attack. <laughs> no, no, try and keep them alive the whole show. Well, you know, that's admirable too, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a great compliment because really you want you want people to feel like they're actually in the car. That was one of our goals. Exactly. It was fantastic just as it came up the side of the theater and then blasted onto the screen and you're like, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, I think we open well. Shelby's in the Le Mans race, and he's reporting on it, and he's saying, you know, uh, if it keeps up like this, he could take the flag. The director, Jim Mangold, saying, like, you know, I was, I just want to slam people here. I want people to know this is what's going to happen. So why don't we just move that uh, a little bit? And I go, well, why don't if we move that? We're going to cut off something. He goes, try it. So we, we retarded the whole thing. We moved it later in the film, and we cut off the, his last word or two and it says if it keeps up to this he could take the boom and it hits the car zooming and it just it was such a jolt that he looked around the room and went you know like yeah i got him i got him <laughs> um you know from the mind of james mangold i mean you have to give him a hundred percent of the credit for anything that i work on he's just a great collaborator and he has a great sense of sound and what he wants in his head so all compliments go to him I think you can take a couple of them, too, there, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, thanks a lot, everybody, and uh, have a great day. uh, Thanks for having me. See you guys later. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. Before we go, I want to send a huge thank you shout-out to Sue Malpass in the UK, who edited and mixed this episode. 
It was a super complicated edit for reasons that are completely impossible to tell because she did such a great job with it. She works at Atonic Sound Limited and has an amazing list of credits that she has worked on. It truly humbles us that she would offer the time to help us out with this. You can look her up at tonicsoundstudio.com. There will be a link on tonebenderspodcast.com where you can find that. Thanks again, Sue. It was a pleasure working with you on this. Stay tuned for more great episodes coming your way in the next little while. Have a good one. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 